This episode that we are about to cover in Luke chapter 18, 18 to 30, is one of the more tragic encounters of Jesus' ministry. It really is. We have this man who is inquiring from Jesus about eternal life, who trusts in himself that he is righteous. And when Jesus confronts that self-righteousness and actually exposes the man's sin, when he realizes actually what he is trusting in and what he is truly worshiping, he decides to go ahead and continue to hang on to that sin and walk away from Jesus. That's what makes this so tragic. And and another thing, too, to consider is that this man really has no problem with the believability of Jesus. It's not that he disagrees with what Jesus has to say about what he must do or about eternal life or who God is or any of those things. It's that he just doesn't believe that Jesus is worth it. And what makes this, you know, the the tragedy multiply is that this is no rare thing. This is the common thing. Sinners needing what Jesus the Savior alone has to give and counting Him not worth it. Walking away and in reality... Choosing the world over heaven and death over life. That's the tragedy. And I know we go over the Gospel and the dangers of self-righteousness. And through Luke's Gospel, we've been going over the dangers of wealth for a long time. But please, this, as we were studying the providence of God this morning, God puts you here. He has you here right now in this time, in this place. And what a privilege it is for us to hear Him Speak to us. So let's give the Word of God our full attention and Jesus our devotion. We'll begin in verse 18. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question is essentially the same question as the Philippian jailer put to the Apostle Paul and Silas there in Philippi. Remember that whole uh, prison scene incident? And, And the jailer said, he pressed Paul, And Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered in the way that we as New Testament Christians would expect him to answer. Very simply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Same question, but Jesus answers quite differently. And he doesn't answer in a way that we would expect at all. Look at verse 19. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, why would Jesus say this? It's certainly unexpected and it has caused many interpreters quite a bit of consternation. I don't think that the answer is easy necessarily, but I also don't think that the answer will prove to be too difficult as long as we stay context Conscious. That is the the primary key to interpreting the Scriptures faithfully. Always being conscious of the context. So, let's first of all recognize that Jesus is not denying that He is good. That's not what He says. He doesn't say, I am not good. He simply says, why do you call me good? He is also not denying that He is God in the flesh. 
he again says clearly no one is good except God alone. In fact, by this answer, Jesus may provoke the appropriate response to his deity. He may jar that thought loose if someone says, wait, observing Jesus, looking at his obedience to the law, his love for his neighbor, and so on. This man is good. He is good in himself, and he must be God. So perhaps Jesus is serving to provoke that thought. But I don't think that that is Jesus' primary emphasis here. And and I'm saying that because of the context, the other uh, incidents that we have already seen uh, ahead of this encounter and Jesus' teaching in the parables before this and so on. I don't think that Jesus is so much as working to expose his deity as he is exposing this man's degeneracy. That's what he is driving at. Why does he answer in such a peculiar way? And I mean, really, I mean, it's not very surprising to to see Jesus say something that catches us off guard, is it? Jesus knows every individual heart. He knows your heart exactly. He knows this man's heart exactly. And so he answers in a peculiar way because he's answering a a particular individual. He knows exactly what this man needs. The word of Jesus serves to divide soul from spirit. He picks us apart with his word. And so he knows exactly what this man needs to expose him. And he wants this individual to realize that his assuredness is horribly misplaced. Because as we'll see, it's self-assuredness. That's what he has. He's not standing on Christ the solid rock. He's standing on sinking sand. Because he's trusting in himself. He just doesn't realize that he has no ground to stand on. Jesus wants him to know that where he has planted his feet firmly is midair. He has nothing underneath him. And so here is Jesus' case, really, if you want to put it like a a logical argument. okay, This is Jesus' case against this man's self-righteousness. Premise number one. Only God is good. You see that from what he said? Premise one, only God is good. Premise number two, you're not him. Conclusion, you are not good. Only God is good. You're not him. So we conclude, you are not good. So you could think of this as exhibit A in the case against this man's self-righteousness. Exhibit B is to take this man to the law. He's trusting in himself. So first of all, Jesus says, why would you do that? You're not good. You shouldn't trust in yourself. Exhibit B is he takes him to the law. Jesus says to him in verse 20, if you would follow along, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You know how the Ten Commandments are divided into two parts, correct? I hope that you know that. The first four commandments cover our relationship with God. And they require complete worship and reverence for God alone. The second set of commandments, the final six, cover our relationship with people. 
and require righteousness in all of our relationships. And it's that second part of the commandments that Jesus is covering when he brings to the man's attention these five. You know the commandments forbidding adultery, murder, stealing, false witness, and that you commands that you must honor your father and mother. And so the young man, he responds, verse 21, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus has brought up two things, that he is not God and therefore not good, and then the commandments, but this individual is unwavering in his self-righteousness. He believes that he has kept the law without fail. So when he comes to Jesus and he asks what he must do for eternal life, do you think that he is really looking for Jesus to correct his course or to confirm his course? I think the answer is pretty clear. And so this really fits the context of what, you remember last week? Looking at that very famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus speaking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, that is this man to a T. He is acting out that parable. He is the Pharisee, and he may have been a Pharisee, I don't know. But he is completely trusting in himself that he is righteous. Now, you you may have noticed... uh may have done the math there and and realized that of the Ten Commandments and the second part of the Ten, Jesus mentioned five of the commandments, not all six. And so now Jesus is going to bring the, the final commandment that says, you shall not covet, to the four. And, and he's going to use this commandment to really nail this young man to the wall. And so it says in verse 22, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So what has what has Jesus done now? First of all, the man comes believing that that he is near the kingdom. He wants his course confirmed. But Jesus has, first of all, exposed self-righteousness and then shown this individual that he actually has sin. Jesus as Lord, having all the rights of this man's life, being the king, commands him in a very specific application of that Tenth Commandment that says, do not covet. He says, sell everything that you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and leave it all behind. Come, follow me. What is exposed now with the man's sadness and his refusal? Matthew and Mark in this uh, record say that the young man walked away very sad. He has exposed his disobedience to the Tenth Commandment. He has exposed that this man is actually willing to defraud his neighbor in need, not love his neighbor as he loves himself, and actually break the first commandment which says, have no other gods before me, because he worships his possessions and his wealth over Jesus. He is not willing to leave his wealth behind because he believes that his wealth is greater treasure than Jesus. And so self-righteousness and sin are exposed. 
Do you remember in talking about repentance as we've gone through Luke's gospel? I've emphasized two things that we must turn from in coming to Jesus. We must turn from our self-righteousness and trust Jesus as Savior, Jesus alone. And we must also turn from our self-rule and receive Jesus as Lord by faith. Jesus alone. That's It's exactly on those two points where this young man fails. This is what he refuses to do. Why does he refuse to come to Jesus ultimately? Because he trusts in himself and he trusts in his wealth. He worships himself truly, as all self-righteous people do. And he worships his wealth. That's why he won't come to Jesus. He thought in coming to Jesus that he could have the world and heaven too. But when Jesus says, you can't, you can't have both. He weighs Jesus against wealth and he finds Jesus wanting. And so he walks away. Sad as he may be about doing it, he still does it. He still rejects Christ. And think about this. Think about what this man actually believes. It's not like he is an atheist. It's not like he is one of those materialists that doesn't believe in the spiritual or the supernatural or a life beyond this world. He believes those things. It's not the believability of Jesus that he has a problem with. It's the worth of Christ that he doesn't accept. How could anyone walk away from Christ knowing you are choosing this life over eternal life? And that's exactly what this young man is doing. You remember Jim Elliot? Missionary, middle of the 20th century. Died as a martyr in the country of Ecuador. When he was just 21, 22 years old, while he was still stateside, I think he, uh, he went to college in Wheaton, Illinois. He wrote in his journal these very famous words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is there anything that you would not give up to gain Jesus? We're sinners. We feel the tug of the world on our hearts constantly. Even that question itself will, very often when I consider it, cause me Anxiety. But what about this? Could I give up this for Jesus? But think of how foolish it is. How absurd it is to not be willing to sacrifice something for Jesus Christ. How valuable is Christ? What is Jesus worth? Can you afford to go on without Jesus? I mean, that's the way that people normally think of it is, can I afford to give up all of these things? Can, can I afford to give up my dreams and my ambitions? Give up all my rights to Christ? But can you afford to go on without Him? Will you not lay down all to Christ? Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Christ. 
Don't worship wealth. Lay it all down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 24 and forward. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Which immediately begs the question, How difficult is it? Verse 25, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It has often been repeated that there um, was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. It was such a small, narrow opening that you know a camel basically had to get down on its knees and be stripped completely of its load in order to squeeze through this opening. It's a myth. There was no such gate in Jerusalem. Somebody made that up in the 11th century. It's unfortunate that it's been repeated. But you can tell even that it's a myth because of how the people respond. They say, shocked at this, then who can be saved? They're not thinking, oh, well, you know, a camel can struggles to get through, but it can make it through, maybe barely, but it still can make it, so maybe the rich can make it too. No, Jesus is saying, He's act, it's not a gate. It's, you know, the eye of a needle. So just imagine the great big honking camel, the two humped kind, trying to, to squeeze through the tiny opening of the eye of the needle. I mean, look at it. He's eyeballing this thing. It's not happening. It's laughable. It's impossible. And that's what Jesus, and Jesus says it would be easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so they ask, then who can be saved? The New Testament, and, and Luke's Gospel especially, let me quote from David Garland, Luke's Gospel especially sees a direct relationship between the quantity of one's possessions and the difficulty of one's discipleship. There is a direct relationship between the quantity of one's possessions and the difficulty of one's discipleship. Do we appreciate how dangerous wealth is? I don't think that we do. And the reason I say that is because we all, perhaps to different degrees, but we all have wealth. We certainly have the poor in our community. But we all have advantages that the former world or ancient times did not have, even kings. And let me put it this way. Let me talk about the danger of wealth because it's not only for the rich, it's also for the poor. We spent some time on this earlier, so this might sound familiar. Maybe you remember this. If you live, just rest assured, you know, you rest easy because you have the wealth that you want. Wealth has you in its grip. But if you are living anxiously because you don't have the wealth you want, wealth still has you in its grip. Whether you live assuredly or anxiously because of wealth, wealth has you. And that grip that it has you in may be a death grip. So wealth is a dangerous thing. 
listen, uh, remind yourself of what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. He, or not the Sermon on the Mount. This is the, the parable of the, the seed and the soils. He said, there are people who hear the word of God over and over again. There are people who can hear the word of God all of their lives long. And yet it never changes them. It never produces fruit. Why? Because they are like that soil that is clogged by thorns. And the thorns are the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life, which always will choke the word of God out so that it cannot bear fruit. Unless we exterminate those things. Unless we clear the ground of our hearts from those thorns. That's the danger of wealth. Wealth itself is not an evil. But because of our sinful, weak, and idolatrous hearts, even as believers, wealth is very dangerous. So from the beginning, I'm going to have to tell, stop telling stories about my boys eventually. But, I mean, just the other day, Actually, just this morning, I could talk about an incident. Uh, they're yelling at each other and screaming because, you know, one has the yellow plastic construction hat in the, from the nursery room box. And yesterday it was, uh, or two days ago, uh, you know, who had the action figures from the McDonald's Happy Meal and who didn't, you know, that kind of thing. And it's always mine, mine, and scream. And that's how we are just from the beginning. You know, foolish and selfish. And that's how we are from the beginning. And who, what are our gods in and of ourselves? Me or mine and more. I cling to mine and I'm reaching for more. And that's what this individual was. Worshipping himself and straining for more. Refusing to give up what he had for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. When you think of these are our gods naturally, these are our first idols, you know, me or mine and more. Let me ask you, where is your righteousness? And where are your true riches? Where is your righteousness and where are your true riches? Do you know what the saved soul answers? In some fashion or another, the, the saved soul says you have two questions, one answer. One answer, Jesus. Where are my True riches? Jesus. Where is my righteousness? It's Jesus. Jesus is all. So says the saved soul. If self-worshipping and wealth-worshipping hearts could not be saved, we would, every last single one of us, be lost forever. But God can save us. And that's what Jesus answers. They say, then who can be saved? The Lord responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can save us. God can save our self-worshipping and wealth-worshipping hearts and souls and minds and strength. God can save us completely. Is there a perfect life to live? Jesus will live it. Is there a penalty paying death to die? Jesus will die it. Is there a victory to be won over sin and death and hell? Jesus will win it. Jesus will bring us to Himself. For the Lord says, all whom God has given to me will come. 
all whom the Father gives to the Son will come. Every last one. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot even begin to draw near to God. God does the work. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And when you think about these things, it's who in their right mind would serve anyone else? Who in their right mind would trust anyone else but the Lord Jesus Christ? Who would not count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ? For His sake, I say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, for His sake, count everything else as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. Gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of your own which comes through any obedience to the law, but gain Christ and be found in Him having that righteousness which is through faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is salvation. Now Peter, in verse 28, speaking on behalf of the disciples, responds to Christ. He says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. You know, what the young man refused to give up, Peter and the other disciples had given up already. They had left their ships, they had left their nets, their fishermen uh, trade, and their families behind to follow after Jesus Christ. And so now Jesus says, for all who laid down their lives to gain Christ, He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I told you from the beginning of our time in Luke's Gospel that this book was written so that we would be certain. Certain of the truth of Jesus and certain of the worth of Jesus. And we have seen the glory of Jesus Christ on display with that intent for your heart and your soul so that you would be certain of His truth and certain of His worth. So that when He calls to you, you will be ready, willing, and able to throw everything behind you. Count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord. If I could uh, rephrase Peter for a moment. I, I think that Peter is basically saying, Lord, tell us again how you are to be preferred above all the world and its wealth. Tell us again, Lord, that you are worth it. So Jesus answers that every soul who comes to Him laying it all down self-righteousness and self-rule, will receive many times more in this time, in this life, and in the age to come eternal life. What, what, how can he say many times more in this life? What is worth many times more? Jesus is. Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else is worth more than home, family, but Christ and all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. You cannot put a value on Jesus Christ. What is He worth to you? What is He worth to your soul? How can we ever 
prefer the world to Jesus. I'm not talking about the planet, you know that, but I'm saying this especially for our, our younger church family members. We're not talking about the planet. We're talking about everything that's opposed to Jesus in this age, in this time, and everything that would steal our hearts away from Him. Everything that could be small g God in His place. How can we prefer anything to Him? How can we choose the world over Christ? Can anything compare to Jesus? I want to think this through for a moment. Are you with me? Is the world slow to anger? Does it abound with steadfast love and faithfulness? Does the world forgive iniquity and transgression and sin against it? How can we prefer the world to Christ? How can we cling to the world instead of Jesus? Is the world the rock whose work is perfect, whose ways are justice, faithful, and without iniquity? Can you pour out your heart before the world and the world be your refuge? Does the world never lie? Can the world never be tempted with evil? Does it never tempt any man? Are the words of the world pure words? Is the law of the world perfect, reviving the soul? Is the testimony of the world sure, making wise the simple? Are the precepts of the world right, rejoicing the heart? Are the commandments of the world pure, enlightening the eyes? Does the world save you for the sake of its steadfast love? Are all its paths steadfast love and faithfulness? Does its steadfast love and faithfulness ever preserve you? Does the world have mercy on you? and blot out all your transgressions according to its steadfast love? Does the world bury your sin in the depths of the sea and remove it as far as east is from west and remember it again no more? Does the world do those things? Is its steadfast love great to the heavens and its faithfulness to the clouds? When you think, my foot slips, does the steadfast love of the world hold you up? Is its steadfast love better than life? Is its steadfast love never ceasing? Are the mercies of the world new every morning? Is the world's faithfulness great? Is the world eternal before the mountains were brought forth from everlasting to everlasting? Is the world holy, holy, holy? Does the world command that you worship it in the splendor of holiness? Does the world declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done? Does the world accomplish all its will? Does the word of the world not return to it empty, but accomplish all that it purposes? Does the world make you go out in joy and lead you forth in peace? Does the world call for the wicked to forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts? And does the world promise to have compassion and to abundantly pardon? Is the world the fount of living water? Is its dominion an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away? And is the world's kingdom one that shall not be destroyed? Does the world have unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways? Does the world need no counselor? Are all things from it and through it? 
and to it. Does the world bless the poor in spirit and those who mourn, the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Does the world bless the pure in heart and the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake? Does the world proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind? And does the world set at liberty those who are oppressed? Does the world speak and still the storm? Does the world speak and raise the dead? Is the world the bread of life? Is the world the way, the truth, and the life? Is the world the resurrection and the life? Does the world give righteousness to all who believe? Does the world have grace in which you may stand? Does the world work all things together for your good. Can you never be separated from the world's love? Does the world bear your griefs and carry your sorrows? Was the world pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities? Was the world oppressed for you and yet opened not its mouth? Did the world love you and give itself up for you? Did the world take your guilt upon itself and die in your place? Does the world take its life back again? Does the world reign from heaven? Will the world raise the dead? Will the world put death to death? And does the world make all things new? I want you to hear these Scriptures and realize and take it to heart again that this is Christ. Christ is all, and Christ does this all, and more. And it would be foolish, absurd to think that we would choose the world and cling to it over Christ. As laughable as as the picture of the great, big, honking, two-humped camel trying to squeeze through the eye of the needle. As absurd as that is, It would be even more absurd and laughable for me to cling to the world over Jesus Christ. The world does none of those things. The world is none of those things. Jesus is all, does all, and more. So will we cling to the world or to Christ? Will you lay down your all to Him again? Self-righteousness, righteousness I have none. Christ is my righteousness. Wealth of the world, what is it in comparison to Him? Christ is all my riches. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is all. And I pray that He would have the faith and He would have the, the honoring and He would have the worship And He would be the choice of every heart here. I pray, Father, that You would, by Your Spirit, convict us absolutely that Jesus is all and the world is nothing. He is forever and the world is passing away. He is pure. The world's nothing in comparison to Him. Oh Lord, I pray that You would give to us Your Spirit so that we would believe in And we would serve Your Son. And I know, Father, Your promise. And I pray that every person here would be taken by it. That if we will honor Your Son, You will honor us.
Who are we to be honored by you? Who are we to be exalted and glorified? Who are we to be rewarded with eternal life? Who are we to reign with Jesus forever? Who are we to look upon your face? Your grace and your mercy, your love for us wins us to Jesus. Oh Lord, may he win every heart here, please, without exception, for Christ's sake, for our soul's sake, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.